Today's program was brought to you by Fiji Water and Patina Events at Brooklyn Botanic Garden, an idyllic location for weddings, corporate events, and parties of any style. Visit us at patinaevents.com. Hey, Food Radio listeners. I'm HRN's Executive Director, Katie, and I'm really excited to share that we're launching a brand new show. Meet in 3 is HRN's weekly food news roundup. Tune in for a deep dive and three tasty shorts every Friday evening. It's 15 minutes, so you can listen while you wait for your pizza. This week, the fight for universal free lunch in New York City public schools isn't over yet. I'm overburdened. I'm overworked. I don't get staffed when people are out. Plus, Dana Cowan, former editor of Food & Wine magazine and host of HRN's Speaking Broadly, catches up with Valerie Lomas, the winner of the Great American Baking Show's Derailed Season 3. Discover how a Danish brewery is motivating people to get fit. And hear Alison Roman speak to the highs and lows of her cookie recipe going viral. Every time I see anyone in a social setting, that's generally the first thing they ask me is, how are the cookies? Be better informed and wildly inspired by the stories and people you hear on Meet and 3. Find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway, and it's a beautiful Sunday in June today. I am joined by a brilliant author, but she's also a radio producer, so I'm a little bit nervous right now <laughs> with her in the studio with me. Um, she has long been a contributor for um, her as a radio producer for NPR, American Public Media, StoryCorps, WNYC's and sorry, WNYC and the Splendid Table. And um, she is a first time cookbook author, too. So I'm really pleased to be joined by Vaughn Diaz. Thanks so much for having me, Kathy. Thanks so much for joining. And your first book is called Coconuts and Collards Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South. That's right. And it is, you know, you are a storyteller. So I was really, you know, this book has that perfect combination that I love to read um, in a cookbook, which is basically 50% story, 50% recipe. Is that about right? That's about right. Yeah. That's what I was after. Yeah. And that's unique, though. You know, I see, I see you know, many cookbooks come through here, let's face it. <laughs> um, and I, I'm always looking for, like, a little bit more story. Um, so you tell the story, just to kind of, like, briefly familiarize folks with it, you tell a story of the fierce women in your life. So there's a chapter that delves into your grandmother, or Tata, and then your mother, and also yourself um, throughout. But, um, and then they're divided by sort of sections of recipes that go along with those tales. Yeah, that's right. Um, I recently rewatched Like Water for Chocolate, mm-hmm. and I couldn't help but notice that you have a quote here from the author of that novel, um, the Mexican author, Laura, was it? Esquivel. Esquivel. Mm-hmm. Um, were you inspired by that book? And, oh, and, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's funny. My, I most certainly was uh, influenced and inspired by the women in my life. I think um, like a lot of 
uh, let's face it, like a lot of young Latina women, I was raised in this very strong matriarchal little um, <laughs> little mini society that was my family that was largely absent of, of men. Um, and my mom is, I would say, not as much of an eater as I am, but my mother is a, a lover of good storytelling. And Like Water for Chocolate was one of the first... Um, one of the first actually movies and then books um, that I ever experienced that I was like, huh, there's this magical quality to food that I think I experienced. I don't know that I experienced at the level of, you know, chiles en nogado making you cry mm -hmm. at a dinner table. But I had certainly been sort of moved to move to um, have really strong feelings by food that I ate. And I think that made a, you know, played a big role in me wanting to write a book that captured how important food is to us emotionally, psychologically, mm -hmm. um, and how much it can be a binder to culture. Yeah. And I love that you have, you know, you emphasize cooking with your senses and also with your, with a sense of family history. Um, like, for instance, you write, you know, with history and culture as your guides, the path to creating delicious foods that you make and those around you that make you and those around you smile can be incredibly joyful and can reveal connections to your past and to others that you wouldn't otherwise see. So yeah. cooking as a sort of personal exploration as well as creativity is, is uh, really important, too. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly important to me. Um, I gave a TEDx talk in 2015 that focused on mofongo as mm. kind of the, the, the if, if, I'm, if I mean, the whole talk was about mofongo and how mm -hmm. we can look at a dish like mofongo. So I don't have a recipe in this book um, mm -hmm. for mofongo. Um, I do have a recipe in the great America, uh, America the Great cookbook oh, um, for yeah. a mofongo recipe that, that my, my grandmother helped me develop. But, uh, you know, at its root, it is um, plantains that are deep fried and smashed and then combined with garlic and chicharron or fried pork skins. And if you look at the dish and start to kind of take it apart, you see indigenous influence, African influence, mm -hmm. Spanish influence, and American influence all wrapped up in one ball of deep fried plantain. And, you know, dishes like that, looking in my family's pantry particularly when I was growing up in the South and would look at my American friends' um, pantries versus what was in my pantry mm -hmm. made me ask a lot of questions about like, well, what is adobo and why do we use it? And um, those kinds of single ingredients a lot of times inspired me to ask questions. Yeah. So you grew up um, at first in Puerto Rico and then you moved to Atlanta? Just outside of Atlanta, yeah. So did that kind of put a sharper focus on the differences the, that you were, that you know, of your household food? Um, do you become more interested in exploring them once they were no longer, you know, the normal things that other kids had in their cabinets? I think I did. You know, I um, I don't remember living in Puerto Rico as a child. Mm -hmm. I only remember my trips back, which were fairly frequent. Um, we went back at least once a year. And as I talk about a lot in Coconuts and Collards, I would go back sometimes for the entire summer and, um, and be just with my grandmother, who was this incredible force. And, you know, so that going back and forth, 
I think, was part of what made me deeply curious because, you know, if I had just gone back, I don't know, kind of once in a blue moon at Christmas time, my understanding of Puerto Rican food might be defined by holiday meals. Mm. But as it was, you know, I got to see kind of how people really ate. I started to notice how different the grocery stores were. Um, and, and I started to wonder, okay, well, you know, why do they only have this small assortment of vegetables in Puerto Rican grocery stores. Whereas where I live, you know, in the South, there's an abundance of different kinds of things. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I do think that it, it highlighted the differences, but it also highlighted the similarities. Um, mm -hmm. in, um, in the second chapter of coconuts and collards, I talk a lot about my experience kind of becoming a Southerner, um, because I, I really at times feel as Southern as I do Puerto Rican. Mm -hmm. Um, the South is my home in much more of a palpable way. Um, yeah. And I think that going between those two places enabled me to see how similar preparations were for certain dishes, um, the ingredients that we shared, and to start to ask questions like, okay, so how, you know, what we call pernil, they might call roast pork shoulder mm. in the South, but they're basically the same process. So, right. yeah, I think that it, it, um, it, it inspired as much kind of interest in the, in the similarities as the differences. Yeah, and um, like your names, uh, you know, what do you call it? The titular uh, recipe here, coconuts and collards. It looks like just a really natural and beautiful um, braised collard greens with coconut milk. Yeah, you know, it is just the simplest recipe. Some kind of like magic happens in, I think, uh, there's some kind of alchemy there that I, I've talked about this recipe a lot because it is the book's namesake, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it is kind of a, I don't know, perfect representation of of what I was trying to do with the recipes in the book, which is to take one ingredient from one, one culture, one homeland, ingredient from another culture in another homeland and figure out how they might fit mm -hmm. um, if they did you know it's it's not it's almost it's not quite fusion because it's sort of like it's ingredients that lived alongside each other in my home in my in my body <laughs> um, and um, and figuring out oh well you know where do they fit naturally and where are the combinations where they really shine mm-hmm and you also try to, you write to, that you like to try to lighten things up a little bit where possible um, or when you feel like it. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I am, I prefer not to eat very heavy, very greasy food. I have a very similar composition to my mom who just prefers eating largely vegetarian food. And I also prefer on the day to on the day-to-day -to, -day to eat largely vegetarian food um, with, you know, I love pork and I, lo I literally, there's not a thing on the planet I don't like to eat. But Puerto Rican food, in my experience and in my memory, you know, a lot of times I would go back for the summer over the holidays and I would just gorge myself on the food because it was so delicious and I would feel so terrible because the food was just incredibly heavy mm -hmm. and a very difficult thing for you to eat at that level um, and, and so much of it. So, um, I really wanted to figure out which of, you know, like how do I take a Puerto Rican recipe, keep it delicious, but just make it a little bit less of a, I don't know, kind of a bomb in your stomach, mm -hmm. which a lot of Puerto Rican dishes are for me. Um, so it's, I think, you know, I think I did a pretty good job. I, 
ultimately wanted them to stay delicious. So sometimes that means that you got to keep something in there. I mean, my fried chicken recipe is just a standard yeah. fried chicken recipe. Right. There's nothing healthy about that. No, I love that there's a good combination here of classics and then updated classics and then twists, you know, the Southern twists. Um, I think it's interesting, though, you mentioned that um, historically Puerto Rican food um, has reflected a lack of access to healthy ingredients um, and subsequently um, a reliance on making things pretty heavy and filling as a, you know, farming and working class community, um, you know, the, the reliance on heavy foods has imbued itself within the cuisine pretty for a pretty long time. But you write that, you know, the combinations born of necessity and fusion also create a uniquely Caribbean flavor po- profile that is rife with potential. So is your goal to sort of tap into the potential of, of creating a sort of more vegetable forward um, focused cuisine using the same flavors and so forth? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I use the word Caribbean really deliberately in, in, in what I wrote there because so much of what you see in Puerto Rican food, particularly around access, around um, the availability of vegetables, the use of vegetables in the cuisine, the heaviness um, of the dishes, is something you see in the Dominican Republic, in Haiti, in Jamaica, in, in Cuba. It's not necessarily unique to Puerto Rico, but Puerto Rico is my lens, right? Mm-hmm. And um, I do believe strongly that because of the way that Puerto Rico was a worker colony, you know, largely a cane sugar cultivation colony for Spain for a very long time, and then transitions into this uh, U.S. territory where the primary industry is tourism, and there isn't really sort of a movement there to kind of elevate um, Puerto Rican cuisine to cultivate the land in Puerto Rico for vegetables in a way that it hasn't been cultivated before. Instead, the food has continued to be, I think, largely reliant on filling food that you might eat if you were working um, heavy. And, you know, even though things have changed dramatically in Puerto Rico and it is no longer sort of defined by this cane culture, you still see the evidence in the history of the food. Mm -hmm. Of the everyday food. But that's starting to change a little bit, as you note, um, when you have your uh, last section called Retorno Mm -hmm. and a triumphant return back to Puerto Rico and a trip to um, a wonderful restaurant that you discovered there has, um, does that give you a sense that the cuisine is slightly or slowly trying, starting to change a bit? You know, I think um, I am speaking from my experience, right? right? And And I, and I grew up on the mainland. So in many ways, my lens for Puerto Rican food is what I see from here and what I see on visits. So a lot of what I speak to, I think, comes from the comes from diaspora Puerto Rican food mm-hmm. culture, the things that we maybe ate because they were the things that we had access to, or maybe because they were nostalgic, you know, dishes that we might only eat at Christmas on the island maybe become more everyday here because they are that tie. And what I have seen in Puerto Rico when I've gone back um, you know, there have been several articles written, um, one in the New York Times, about a return to growing vegetables that actually had never really been cultivated in Puerto Rico. Hmm. I have a, an incredibly easy time eating vegetarian food, eating light. Um, lo- I mean, Puerto- tons of beautiful fresh fruit grow in Puerto Rico. And so I think, you know, it's difficult to speak to an entire culture, particularly post-Maria, because yeah. I really, it's not clear to me how that hurricane is transformed 
transforming foodways in Puerto Rico as we speak. Right. But I do think that, um, uh, you know, a quick anecdote from my last trip to Puerto Rico that I write about in that book is that people um, were obsessed with curcuma, which is um, turmeric. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I went, people were putting turmeric in everything because it has health benefits. Mm. And so older people, um, there was fresh turmeric in all of the green markets. And I saw that as a sign of, you know, a, uh, a culture of people who are looking at the nutritive value of their yeah. food just as much as if it tastes good. Yeah. And interests, curiosity and new health benefits. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the times. Mm-hmm. Like, like, aren't we all here? <laughs> we, we must. <laughs> um, I want to talk a lot more about some of these recipes sure. and also some recent developments in food media in general, um, right after a quick little commercial break. Patina Restaurant Group offers unparalleled service in New York's most iconic locations, including Lincoln Center, Rockefeller Center, and Macy's Herald Square. From meetings and presentations in the glass-walled atrium to galas in the renovated Palm House and intimate wedding showers at Yellow Magnolia Cafe, your event will be perfectly imagined and customized at Brooklyn Botanic Garden. You can also enjoy a la carte brunch and lunch at the picturesque Yellow Magnolia Cafe overlooking Lily Pool Terrace. Chef Rob Newton and chef de cuisine Morgan Jarrett offer warm, distinctive cuisine with a focus on local vegetables, grains, and sustainably sourced meats and fish. All right, and we're back chatting more with Vaughn Diaz. She is a radio producer and also a cookbook author. The latest book, or her first book, and the latest book is Coconuts and Collards. So, Vaughn, um, sort of recently um, I ran into you at the James Beard Media Awards, and that was a, you know, everyone has been talking about how it's been a pivotal year um, in terms of the awards diversity and the diversity of the winners and um it definitely seemed like a lot of the winners at the media awards um were really electrifying the crowd with their speeches and triumphant you know uh, mentions of you know immigrant stories being very crucial to food media in general and our culinary landscape in general um, this has been quite the talk of the town lately it has yeah mm-hmm. and i'm curious you know as an author of a book about Puerto Rican food. Um, You know, how hard was it to get this book published? (laughs) (laughs) I have a sneaking suspicion um, that it may have been a little difficult. It was very challenging. I um, I mean, I really should say that I am incredibly grateful to my agent, Lisa Eckes, and to University Press of Florida, who took this project on, despite what I kept hearing through the process of trying to sell it, Um, was a book that I think people had a difficult time wrapping their brain around. You know, um, I know from other um, cookbook authors who write about um, what is known often as regional cuisine that um, it can be a difficult sell in an increasingly struggling publishing market. Um, And so I feel like that was an initial barrier that I had to my book that, you know, I write about a food that is really specific and not a food that you go um, to a James Beard award winning restaurant to eat. You know, it is, Mm -hmm. I think, thought of as um, sometimes a street food, as kind of comfort food. Um, and, and so I think that there, that was an initial barrier to, I think, to publishers really being able to get, um, why they should take a chance, why they should be the ones to publish the first kind of unusual Puerto Rican cookbook to come out in a really long time. Um, and in addition, you know, I think 
I'm not the first to say that being a, a woman of color in food writing spaces um, you can you can feel really alone sometimes. Um, you know, you go to you go to events, you speak on panels, and at times, I think I've had the experience, like many other of my colleagues, of feeling a little tokenized, um, and also just feeling like I didn't see myself reflected in the events or in things being published. Um, and certainly, speaking specifically to food media, right, to magazines and newspapers and, and television shows, um, not seeing myself reflected there either. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I think that that is a, I, I don't think we can underestimate how difficult it is to break into an industry that is very challenging, that a lot of times requires you to be a freelancer, right? So you're dealing with some economic instability potentially for a long time, depending on your project. Um, I, like a lot of my colleagues, like I don't own a restaurant. I'm a self-taught cook, you know? And so all of the things that might kind of have elevated my status to make me a little bit more noticed, I didn't have. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, the you know, I, I felt um, sometimes alone at sea uh, and without mentors, right? Like without another kind of big Puerto Rican or many big Puerto Rican chefs right. to kind of look to and be like, I want to be like that. Or, you know, those are the people who are going to support me when I come out. So, um, yeah, it was ve- it was very challenging. Um, I, you know, I've always been really transparent that it took me two attempts, um, one revisal of the proposal in about a year and a half. Mm-hmm. to sell the book um, right. with an agent. Um, and that feels like a pretty long time compared to what I've heard other people's experiences are. Um, and um, it also, you know, I was also then asked to turn it around pretty quickly, which felt, um, I don't know that that's that unusual. Mm-hmm. Um, ultimately, I think I had nine months total to that's... do all of it. Um this whole collective experience sounds like it's um, a little bit not very empowering sounding, right? Yeah, it was um, challenging. I yeah. mean, it's certainly along the way it felt like a challenge. I've also always been really transparent in telling people I had to have a full-time gig right. alongside my book project mm-hmm. in order to make it um, as, I think, as beautiful as I wanted to and to have it Mm, to be able to preserve the kind of creative and intellectual integrity that I wanted to have. I mean, I opened the book with a quote from Sidney Mintz, who Mm -hmm. is one of the foremost cultural anthropologists of our time. And, you know, for me, it was really important that the book have, that it be smart. And that was also something I think that was a little bit unusual. Um, But yeah, it, it, it did felt, it felt like an uphill battle for, um, for for a minute, but also just one that was so much fun. Good. You know, yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have written this book if I didn't. No, I would never have written a book. Period. If I couldn't have enjoyed the process and right and um, had stories that were really worthy of telling. I mean, thank I you for that's, saying that. Yeah, I appreciate. You could that. see the passion throughout this book. Yeah. And well, and you know, I think that part of what is really exciting about this moment, where I feel like folks who have been at this for a long time are being recognized mm-hmm. is that, you know, every door 
is an opening for another person to walk through. And I was mentored by um, one of my longtime mentors is Kathy Gunst, who is a prolific cookbook author. Um, She has written 15 cookbooks, um, largely about kind of local food and and Maine. And she has been writing about food since it wasn't a cool thing to do, like late Mm -hmm. 70s, early 80s. And she saw promise in me and completely pro bono edited some of my early work and was an incredible champion for me, recommended me to do a TEDx talk. And I really, I mean, her opening doors for me changed my life. Sounds like you a, know. Yeah, great endorsement and a great, um, it's a great uh, mentorship too. Yeah, for- I mean, really, I, I, I couldn't have done it without her. And, um, you know, but so I now, it's now my responsibility to start opening doors. And you know, I've been so moved to see Julia Tertian's um, Equity at the Table project, which I'm, I'm featured on that website and um, delighted to go to it and see all the faces of all these, you know, just mm-hmm. amazing, interesting people that I didn't even know existed who are now, you know, now we're part of a community. We're right. building a community community. So the next time that like a young Puerto Rican woman is like, hey, I want to do a completely vegetarian Puerto Rican cookbook, you know, like there's someone that her future publisher can look to be like, oh, well, this, you know, this book did like this and people were really interested. And, you know, it's a, it's a big part of the process. You know, right. each of us that like gets a little bit of coverage and, and, and is celebrated opens the door for the next person to maybe do better than we do. That's a that's a yes, that's very hopeful. Um, I also think that all eyes are now on gatekeepers in the food media to, mm-hmm. um, you know, take the cues from from what we've learned um, from the success of books that um, have been received and, you know, have won these awards, but also were regional mm-hmm. or quote unquote niche, which is, which is a refrain I seem to hear a lot with, uh, <laughs> with my projects. Mm. But um yeah, I mean, I, I think that, do you think that we will see that reflected in the choices that are made in publishing going forward? Is that- I would like to think so. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that part of what is happening as the tide turns is that publishers are increasingly being held accountable. And, you know, uh, my colleague, Nicole Taylor, who has been at this game for a long time, you know, she used to be the only voice in the room. I don't know. I don't know that it's fair to say the only voice in the room. She's certainly the loudest voice in the room. And she stuck to her politics and she stuck to her really wise um, analysis of what she saw around her. And now her voice is really elevated. And those of us who maybe weren't aware or weren't in food writing at the time, or maybe didn't have the courage to speak up, like now, now we're speaking up more and more. And which is why I've always been really transparent with people about how difficult it was. Mm-hmm. What I shouldn't say how difficult, like what an incredible challenge yeah. it was to, to write a cookbook and get it published. Um, because a we need to hold the publishers as accountable on the book level as we do the people who select guests for their TV and radio shows. You know, one of the things that um, has stood out to me as far as how we need to start thinking about what we produce differently is um, the Netflix series, A Chef's Table. Mm-hmm. The first um, season of that show that I ever watched was like, man, this is really gorgeous, but there's a real lack of diversity of who I'm seeing celebrated on this show. Now, 
the the chef's a chef's table um, uses Michelin stars oh, as the, the gu- okay. that's that's the rubric for the entire show is mm. Michelin star awarded restaurants. Right. And so there's a built in um, a handicap Criteria, to the show yeah. mm-hmm. that they're never they're not going to surpass until more chefs of color receive Michelin stars, <laughs> you know. And so it's it's that's the kind this, of thing. I think that that I think we're going to start seeing a shift right. where we don't create um, projects or TV shows or magazines that have built-in problems. Like we start, th- maybe I think we need to start thinking about that from the beginning. How do we ensure that we're creating something that has equitable representation and also equitable access for the people writing, the people we're writing about, and create a real, you know, a more holistic view of what's going on in yeah. the food world. And I think it's important to point out that um, enough. I, I think a lot of people have made this point that, um, including Julia Tertian recently. That, you know, some of these choices amongst food media are self-fulfilling prophecy. So, you know, if you create this um, criteria like a Michelin star and um, it's only elevating these voices or so forth. And um, or in publishing, if you, you know, say something's niche, you, you know, (laughs) you Mm -hmm. have a smaller advance for one project. Yep. And it's going to be more challenging. You're going to have less resources thrown at that book project. And it's not going to do as well. Yeah. So, so it's like this um, machine that needs to be um, re reanalyzed. Yeah. And I mean, I, I am really thrilled to see um, people taking apart concepts of diversity and concepts of equity. Because I think for, for too long, um, people have been conflating those two ideas and thinking that simply having representation is like that's That's how you solve the problem versus we already know you know having people having people of color at the table is as important as as giving them an award and putting them on a stage you know well and I have to say as an aside to my I happen to have grown up in the south Um, that is where my family happened to end up and a lot of conversations around southern food hinge on soul food right mm-hmm. like um and who owns soul food uh are we celebrating the voices of enslaved people who are the architects of mm-hmm. that food right um and it's interesting coming in as a Puerto Rican to that conversation because I see those same similarities in the way we talk about Puerto Rican food um a kind of tokenizing of areas of cuisine or particular dishes an essentializing right of that kind of cuisine that I I think has a lot of similarity with the way that black folks have been erased from the culinary history of the United States. And those are the kinds of conversations, you know, my opportunity now to be at the table. Now I get to be a part of kicking that dust up Mm -hmm. so that it's not such a polarized conversation. We're talking about white people, we're talking about black people. We are talking about a lot of different cultures and foods that are, you know, have been historically um, at times completely erased or appropriated and turned into things that, you know, look nothing like their original dishes. So mm-hmm. I, I feel very, very hopeful. And am, I also feel very grateful that I have a book out at a moment where, you know, I can now join this very exciting, impactful conversation. Yeah. It does seem like a moment. Um, a few weeks ago, we had Virginia Willis on oh, her she's latest so amazing. book. On yeah, and we we were having a lot of um, conversations about what what Southern cuisine is. So, 
Um, and I love what you said about, you know, what you've written now hopefully opens the door for more voices. And uh, maybe you'll get to be that person who's a mentor. So. I sure hope so. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's about all the time we have for today. But um, thank you so much for a really, really great conversation, Vaughn. Thank you, Kathy. It's been a pleasure. And everyone can check out Coconuts and Collards out now from University of Philadelphia? Pre- uh, Florida. Florida Press. All right. <laughs> well, thanks, everyone, on Heritage. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.